worship the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They worship lots of other gods, specifically Artemis being the biggest. And one of the interesting things about this letter compared to some of the other letters that Paul wrote is that Paul probably doesn't know a lot of the people who will be reading this letter. Now, he had been to Ephesus before. We read about that in the book of Acts, but it had been quite some time since Paul had spent significant time in Ephesus. Paul knew some of the leaders in Ephesus, Timothy being one of them. But again, he hadn't been there in person for several years at least. As a result, Paul is writing this letter to these Gentile believers that he maybe has heard a little bit about, but he really doesn't know them very well at all. But as he writes this letter, you see there's a main gist that he's getting at. As he writes this letter to these new believers who are mostly Gentiles, his goal is to tell them of their new identity in Christ. And I believe that we as followers of Jesus need the same message today. Those of us who are new believers, we need to discover from the pages of Scripture who we are in Christ, the new identity that we've been given. And if we're old believers, we too need to be reminded from the words of Scripture who we are in Christ, of our new identity. So with that, open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. If you're using one of the Bibles in our chairs, this will be located on page 836. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we start reading in verse 1, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. God, we look around the world around us. We see a day like this when it's warm. We see beautiful snow when it snows. We see incredible landscapes that you've created. And we learn a little bit about you from those landscapes and from looking at creation. But God, we learn more than anything about you from your word. And so thank you for giving us your word to read this morning. Thank you that we have the freedom and the ability to gather together in this church building to worship you, to praise you, to take communion, and to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that your spirit would be moving, that your word would be living and active in our hearts and in our minds, and that we would leave here changed, encouraged and reminded of the identity that you've given us in Christ. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sounds like a pretty standard greeting. Not a whole lot there. It's kind of just there for the sake of courtesy. But there's actually two big claims that Paul already makes in verses 1 and 2, about himself and about these Ephesian believers. First thing, in these first two verses, Paul refers to himself as an apostle. Now, it's interesting that Paul would refer to himself as an apostle. The standard criteria to call yourself an apostle is that you had to spend time directly with Jesus. And Paul never did that. 
Paul wasn't around while Jesus was doing his ministry for those three years, roughly, before he died on the cross. So why would Paul call himself an apostle? Well, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's riding his horse. He has this encounter with the risen Christ. He's knocked off his horse. He goes blind for a few days. And he considers that the criteria being met to call himself an apostle. But Paul doesn't throw this word around just to make himself look good. He doesn't throw this word around just so he can feel better about himself. He uses this word because he truly believes that he is someone who is sent from God. Paul believes that God has sent him to plant churches, to raise up leaders, to write letters like this one. And that's a big claim to make for someone to say that they have been sent by God. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate to make it about himself. The second thing Paul says in these first two verses is that he refers to the Ephesians as saints. Now, it's an interesting word to call the Ephesians. We don't really throw that word around a whole lot in this day and age. For us, we sometimes have baggage when we hear that word saints. When we hear the word saints, we picture people who are larger than life, historical figures who have statues in their honor and have hospitals named after them. And yet Paul doesn't really seem to be getting at that at all. He's referring to these common people in Ephesus and he's calling them saints. The reason he does this is because Paul believes that these holy people living in Ephesus have been set apart by God. So before we even get into the main body of Ephesians, Paul has already said that he is sent from God. That is his identity. And he's already said that the Ephesian believers are set apart by God. Two big claims to make about his identity and their identity. So let's pick up in verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, normally, I don't include an outline in the bulletins that we pass out when you walk into the building, but I had one for you this week, because there are seven words about our identity in Christ that I want you to remember. And seven words is a lot to just remember without writing down. So there are spaces in your bulletin where you can write those down. There's an eighth word that applies to all of us together. So take that outline out, take a pen, take a pencil. There are pencils in the back of our chairs and write down these words because we see the first two in verses three and four. The first two words are in those verses. And the first one is this in Christ. I am chosen in Christ. I am chosen. Now, this is a verse where people of some theological persuasions rejoice and some people of different theological persuasions get very, very defensive. And it is often broken down into an arguably overly simplified debate. Does God choose people or do people choose God? Now, this passage certainly leaned towards the idea that God chooses people 
You can't get around the words in this passage. You can't get around words like chose. You can't get around words like predestined. You can't get around a phrase like before the foundations of the world. You simply can't ignore those words and can't ignore those phrases. But the people who might disagree, who seem to look more at the other end of the spectrum, that people choose God, they have their own verses or their own passages that they like to go to. And usually the debate goes round and round and round, and very little is often accomplished through these debates and through these arguments. But regardless of which side that you fall into, or whether you've spent any time even thinking about the question in the first place, there are things that we as followers of Jesus should all be able to agree on. Every Christian should be on the same page about several things. And the first thing is this. We should be on the same page that we are saved by grace alone. Whether one believes that God and his grace unconditionally chooses who will be saved and who won't. Or whether one believes that God and his grace enables people to choose him in spite of their sin. Regardless of which side you take, we can all agree that we are saved by grace and we are saved by grace alone. We should also agree that we're not saved because we have better decision-making abilities than other people. We are not saved because we have the ability to choose God apart from some act of his grace. That's a teaching that has been rejected for centuries throughout the Christian church. It is by grace that we are saved. We are not saved because the gospel is presented to us and we're just a little more wise than some people who don't choose the gospel. It is completely and utterly by God's grace that we're saved, regardless of which side that you may take in the debate. So regardless of which side you're on, regardless of how much thought you've put into it, you can't get around the biblical passages that emphasize God's act of choosing us. But you also have to believe that in some way that doesn't contradict the other passages that we sometimes think seem to say the opposite in our imperfect interpretation. We can all agree that in some shape, form, or fashion, we are chosen. And no matter where you fall in the arguments, the debates, the disagreements, that should be a source of comfort. And that should be a source of confidence. Because in Christ... I am chosen. Now, the second word in Christ, I am holy. That phrase where Paul says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He doesn't just stop there. He says that he's chosen us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we're chosen in order that we might be holy, in order that we might be blameless. Now, Paul already referred to the Ephesian believers as saints. There are people who are set apart by God. In that sense, they are holy in the present. But in the same way, Paul is also saying that day in and day out, these people are being made holy, slowly but surely. And it's important to note that Paul does not say that you are chosen because you were holy. Paul does not say that at all. Paul says that you were chosen in order that you might be holy, in order that you might be blameless. 
We are not chosen because we met some prerequisites where God was obligated to choose us as his people, obligated to give us this new identity in Christ because we proved ourselves good enough. That's not how it works. God shows us in order that we might be made holy. So number one, in Christ I am chosen. Number two, in Christ I am holy. Let's pick up in verse four of Ephesians one, very end of verse four. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The third word to write down is that in Christ, I am adopted. It is through Christ's sacrifice that people like us can call ourselves children of God. Now, the pop theology of Facebook pictures and do-it-yourself spirituality would probably disagree with this assertion. They probably wouldn't like the idea that Christianity would call some people children of God and some people not children of God. That kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. Who are we to say that not every single human being is a child of God? But as we've talked about before here at this church... We are only all children of God in the sense that God created us, that we're created in his image. In that sense, yes, we are all children of God. But you also look at passages like John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47, where Jewish people come to Jesus and they insist with Jesus that they are children of God, that God is their father. And then Jesus promptly tells them that they are actually children of the devil. Huh. Pretty bold claim to make there by Jesus. But then Jesus says that if they really were children of God, they would love him. Think about that. If they really were children of God, they would love him. It is only through Christ that we can truly call ourselves children of God. In the truest and fullest sense of the word. It is only through Christ that we have the privilege of calling God our father. Because in Christ, I am adopted. Another word comes up in verses 7 and 8 as we read there. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished Upon us. We're going to stop right there, halfway through verse 8, because we see another word that's important to mention. In Christ, I am redeemed. I recently read an old story about a young man who lived by a lake. And because he lived by the lake, he grew up with this love for fishing. He loved it so much that one day he decided that he was going to save up all of his money and go buy all the equipment so that he could build his own fishing boat. So he decides to work hard. He eventually saves the money. He puts all the time, all the energy, the blood, the sweat, the tears into building this boat. And he's finally finished it. He's proud of it. He takes it out on the lake. It's a source of joy for him. It's a source of pride for him. But one day the water gets rough. The wind is blowing and the boat comes loose from the dock. The young man goes out and he tries to find the boat. He looks all over for it. He can't find it anywhere. He almost gives up. But then several weeks later, he goes to a store and he sees in the front window for sale 
the boat that he made. He goes in and he asks the shopkeeper if he can have his boat back. He can prove that it's his. He has all the supplies that he put in to build it. And the shopkeeper says, look, I'm sorry. It's not that I think you're lying, but I paid a lot of money for this boat. If you want this boat back, you're going to have to buy it from me. You're going to have to pay the price on the tag, just like anyone else. So the young man goes home and starts all over again. He saves up money all over again. He works hard all over again. And he goes to the shop and he's able to buy this boat. And as he's taking it home, he says this. You are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. The same can be said of those who are in Christ. You imagine a slave or you imagine a prisoner, those who need to be freed. There is always a price to be paid for a slave or a prisoner for their freedom. In our case, we were once enslaved to sin. In our case, we were once imprisoned by rebellion. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that Christ paid our ransom. Christ paid the price that we would be set free. And the price was not gold. The price wasn't silver. The price was his own blood. In Christ, I am redeemed. Pick up in verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 1, coming near the end of this main passage. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if you're keeping up in your outline, this is word number five. In Christ, I am enlightened. Because we are in Christ, we know the mystery of the gospel. We see the wisdom of God that flies in the face of the wisdom of the world. People might think we're crazy for believing that some Jewish rabbi born in the Middle East 2,000 years ago would die on a cross and save us from our sins. But we know that's the truth because God in his grace has shown us the mystery of the gospel. God in his grace has given us the Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us. God in his grace has given us his word that we might study it and know more about him. In Christ, we are enlightened. And the mystery of the gospel that seems like foolishness to those who are passing away is wisdom to us. Verses 11 through 12, Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The sixth word, in Christ, I am an heir. We look forward to being in God's presence upon our death. We look forward to being in God's kingdom when once and for all it is seen on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward knowing that this is our eternal destiny. And we look forward to knowing that in the same way that death did not have the last say with Jesus, death will not have the last say with us. We are heirs to a promise. And we look forward to that promise being fully realized and fully revealed for everyone to see. Because in Christ, I am an heir. 
Finally, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the seventh word, in Christ, I am sealed. We are marked by the Holy Spirit. I've never been overseas, but from what I've read and from what people have told me, to go overseas, you have to, of course, have your passport. It has to be up to date. It has to have the right confirmations on it. And let's say hypothetically that you're in Germany going on a trip and your passport expires while you're there. The only way that you can be formally and fully recognized as a citizen of the United States is if you have the correct, authentic seal on your passport. If your seal is outdated, if your passport is outdated, then you can't truly, fully, formally be recognized as a citizen of the United States. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit is what marks us as God's people. Paul even goes so far in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 as saying that the Holy Spirit is the defining marker of who is in God's family and who's not. And as we look at this seal, as we see the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can have complete and utter confidence that we are heirs to the promise. Some translations even say that the Holy Spirit is a down payment or a deposit for our inheritance to where we don't have to doubt that we are heirs. We don't have to doubt that the promise is coming. Because we have that Holy Spirit. So Paul says a lot of things about those who are in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. He says that in Christ we are chosen, holy, adopted, redeemed, enlightened, heirs, and sealed. Now you put this all together. How can you sum this up in one simple sentence? What does this all mean? We might sum it up and say that those who are in Christ have a completely new identity. We are not the same people that we were before. We are not the same people who learned better manners or who learned to not use bad words the way we used to. We're not the same people just a little bit more cleaned up on the outside. We are completely new creations, not refurbished, not improved, not updated, but new. In Christ, you have been given a new identity, and it is all for the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 21, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He gives several prayer requests on their behalf. He prays that these believers would know God better, that they would know the hope that he gives, the power that he has, the rule that he has given his son Jesus. And Paul could end that prayer right there in verse 21, and it would be a great first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't end at just reminding them of their identity as individuals in verses 1 through 14. He doesn't end by just making some good God-honoring petitions for their good in verses 15 through 21. The prayer keeps going in verses 22 and 23. We read there, and he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For the first time in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul mentions that six letter word church. He says that Christ is the head over all the church. He says that the church is Christ's body. Paul's main idea is that these chosen, holy, adopted, redeemed, enlightened, sealed heirs, all these new identity people, they all belong together. That final word on your outline, that eighth word, in Christ, we are all of these things together. Christ belongs to the church, and the church belongs to Christ. And who is it that makes up Christ's body? It's people like you, and it's people like me, who have been changed by God's grace, who have been given this new identity. And the only thing better than one person whose identity has been changed by the grace of God is a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by the grace of God. We've been given a new identity in Christ, but all these people with these new identities We all belong together. When we look in the mirror, we see someone who has been chosen and holy and adopted and redeemed and all those words that we've talked about. And when we see fellow believers, we don't just see another person who happens to live at the same time we do. We don't just see someone who happens to be sharing our oxygen. We see fellow believers, other people, and they too have been chosen And are being made holy. And they too are adopted and redeemed and enlightened and sealed. And they too are heirs. So as we understand this new identity that we've been given. As we understand the new identity that is given to every single follower of Jesus. I pray that that will change the way we look at ourselves. And I pray that it will change the way we look at those around us. And I pray that in the coming weeks as we talk more about what it means for all of these new identity people to be together, what it means for the church to really be the church, I pray that we will all realize that we cannot do it on our own. That the only thing better than one person with a new identity is a bunch of people with a new identity. That's what the church is for. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us these new identities. I thank you that even though sometimes it's easy for us to be dissatisfied with who we are, we wish that we could look better or do things better or be smarter or have different talents or skills than we do. God, ultimately, I pray that as we consider the identity that you've given us, that we have no reason to be dissatisfied. By your grace, you have done things for us that we cannot do on our own. By your grace, you have made us completely new people. And we're grateful for that. We're in awe of that. And I pray that as we look in the mirror, that will change the way we view ourselves. But I also pray it will change the way that we look at one another. I pray that it will help us function as the church with even more urgency. God, I pray that The new identities that you've given us would change us from the inside out. What we say, what we do, all of these things. 
God, I pray that as we go through the rest of the book of Ephesians, that you would continue to give us ears to hear, open minds, open hearts to what it is that you might be telling us as individuals and what it is that you might be telling us collectively as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're not sure that you have had this identity change brought about by faith in Christ, I pray that you would talk to one of our elders standing at the sides of the room. I pray that you would no longer have to wonder who you are, wonder if you have value, wonder about your identity in the eyes of God, because Ephesians tells you your identity in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done. So if you haven't made that decision yet, talk to one of those elders, ask them questions, have them pray with you, just share whatever it is that's on your heart and on your mind. They'd be happy to listen. So talk to one of those guys as we sing this last song.